Good morning again, and welcome, welcome, welcome. I have announcements this morning, and I'll keep it pretty brief, but um, we get to, we have the opportunity to serve by donating items to Cedar Way and to Vision House, and um, I just kind of want to share a little bit of a story. Um, some of you, you can't necessarily go shopping during the week, and so you choose to um, give online and just let us know, hey, I put some money in for that. And that's really cool, and it is so helpful. And we have had just a little bit of an um, extra outside of what we normally need for um, our potatoes and our onions and our carrots and just that list that we have going every single month. And I got a call um, on Tuesday morning from Belin, who is the um, family coordinator. So she helps with families in need at Cedar Way Elementary School. And they started school, and they just have a bunch of kids that don't have any school supplies. And she just called, and she said, you're the first person I called, and I just don't know, would you be able to help out with this? And it was so cool to know that we could just immediately say yes. It wasn't like, let me see what I can do. Let me go to my people. And in three weeks, it was like, let me get that for you. Do you need it tomorrow? And she's like, what? Like, to really tomorrow? So just to have the ability to be a blessing in our community, to have the gift of a yes. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you have to ask for something. It's not very fun. It is way easier to give than receive or to ask for that help. And so um, it's just cool that we're the first person that she calls and that we're able to immediately say yes. And so we're bringing over like 500 composition notebooks and we've got folders, we've got the right kind of crayons, because if you're a teacher, talk to me about that, right? Crayola, it is the brand. Um, so, you know, just the fact that they can be specific about that and not have us go, whoa, are you sure? Because the Rose Arts are a lot cheaper. It's like, you want Crayola, Crayola it is. So it's broad line markers, fine line markers, um, color crayons, just some of those basic things that they just they have an influx in families in their area that don't know where to go for resources. And so the fact that they can come to a church and say, hey, would you help, is really cool. Are you excited about that too, honey? Yeah, get it, get it. So anyway, thank you. If you're interested in knowing about the needs, um, when things come up, there are times where we don't have the extra cash to be able to say yes. And when that happens, I just send an email out to the list of people that have said, hey, I'm interested in getting text messages or emails whenever there is a need. Um, and if that's you and you'd like to know about that, you're not on our list, you can do that by texting the word helping to the Brookview number. And that will give you our needs for Tuesday. There are still quite a few items that we're needing. And that will give you that list. A digital sign up is how you do it. And you know, okay, we need a case of size five diapers or uh, six bags of potatoes or whatever it might be. So you can take a look at that and just kind of choose from the a la carte menu, for lack of a better better way of putting that. Um, or you can also sign up on your Connect card. Um, I won't get to that until after the distribution. So if you sign up on the Connect card today on your um, on your chair, you won't actually get any information until the next month that we have our distribution because it's this coming Tuesday. Um, so just thank you, thank you, thank you. And those of you that are watching online, I know you are huge contributors to that as well. Um, that's it for announcements. Just fill out that Connect card. If you're watching online, fill out the one online as well. We love hearing from you. So.
oh, we don't have a video for you to get up here. Oh, there's a lot of praying. <laughs> a lot of praying. I mean, I can. I, like, I love God, and I can talk to him at any moment. But I, it's also really fun to talk to you. <laughs> oh, hey, I have a good idea while he's getting situated. Um, has anyone noticed my earrings? Are you wondering about them? Okay, there's a couple of things. Number one, yes, I have a black eye. Um, someone told me I need to have a better story than it happened in soccer, but it's the true story. It happened at soccer. Didn't really hurt. It just happened. But this morning, Hazel Allen, one of our sweet kids' church kids, brought me these earrings. It says, to Miss Jen from Hazel, homemade. Homemade. She made these earrings for me. They are heavy. They're probably going to have to come off. Just, I mean, I don't want to stretch my lobes, but Hazel, your family's here, but maybe they'll show you this, but I love that girl. If you do not get to hang out in kids' church with some of our kids, I'm telling you, you're missing out, and we get to talk about that later today, but I don't have a lot of um, dignity. So, yeah, if you end up back there, it's nothing but sweetness and gifts for you. <laughs> Here's your beverage, my love. Oh, thank you. Yeah. If you're visiting, I'm married to her. I don't do, always do that with everybody. <laughs> yeah, sorry, 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 my love. <laughs> so... As you guys know, our, our nation is kind of a social experiment. And it's built on the idea of e pluribus unum, or out of, out of many, one. But over the last several years, it feels like we've got a whole lot more pluribus than we do unum. Don't you think? <laughs> I'm, I mean, the, the polarization that we have kind of lived through recently is due in part to what sociologists call the big sort. And more and more, we tend to group together only with other people that are like us. So more and more, we, we don't even know people who aren't like us. People who don't think like us, vote like us, live like us, dress like us, spend money like us, vacation like us, act like us. Increasingly, we only do life with people like us. And sociologists tell us, that one, one reason for this is just geographic. That roughly one-third of Americans now live in cities and suburbs, which are more progressive and, for the most part, wealthier, while two-thirds of Americans live in rural areas or small towns or post-industrial cities that are in decline. And they are, overall, less progressive right, and less wealthy. But it's not just geography that's sorting us these days. We're also being sorted digitally. And you know this. But once you go down a certain path, a certain digital path, like on YouTube, right, or on your web browser or social media or whatever, you're just going to be fed more of whatever it is that you look at most, right? So our digital habit, habits are, are actually making us more extreme. They're radicalizing us. And as we spend less time face-to-face -face and relate more digitally, one of the side effects is sort of this epidemic level of loneliness. More and more people have fewer and fewer close friends, people that they can process life with, 
the stress, the unsettled feelings, the worries, the fears. Many have little to nobody to talk through that stuff with. And we know that depression and anxiety are, are big time on the rise in America. But clinical psychologists, Jacqueline Olds and Richard Swartz, in their book entitled The Lonely American, they argue that much of what is called or diagnosed as depression, much of it is actually just loneliness. Because humans aren't designed to thrive in isolation. And so we're turning to all kinds of different things to make us feel better. Did you guys know that Americans consume almost 99% of the world's hydrocodone? We consume 81% of oxycodone. So as a society, we are, it's like we are desperate to numb the pain. And recently I heard a study about rats where they put rats in various cages and then they offer a like, stimulant, which is like, like water plus morphine. So re researchers call it rat heroin. And so they put, they put some rats in cages uh, with, with rat heroin all alone in isolation. And they put other rats with rat heroin in a cage in groups. And get this, the isolated rats drank five times as much of the morphine water. Five times. And the hypothesis is that for social creatures like rats and humans, because we're almost the same, <laughs> isolation leads to addiction. It's creating all sorts of unhealthy dependencies, all sorts of unhealthy ways of coping. And for human beings, what we've seen develop over the last few years is something that we've, we've talked about recently, which is tribalism. Humans are tribal. I mean, we're inclined to, to divide the world into us and them. But, but tribalism isn't community. It's, it's actually more like anti-community. Tribalism is not based on mutual love, but on mutual hate. It's not on what you're for, it's, it's what you're against. And yet tribalism has become kind of a preferred way to try to ease our pain because it comes so naturally, in part because having enemies helps me feel a lot better about myself. Having enemies serves to give me someone to blame. Like enemies give me the sense that, that this is what's wrong with the world, right? They are wrong. They are what's wrong with the world. And you can sort of in just fill in your own they. And of course, for lonely people, enemies give us a tribe to belong to. I mean, for the desperately lonely, anti-community is better than no community. So, like, it's, it's better to be a part of the digital mob screaming at people online than to just, like, sit in your apartment, scared and alone. So right now, fear and loneliness are being preyed upon, and you know this, by this vast emerging industry that some are calling, um, and I love this, polytainment. So this lethal mix of politics, journalism, and entertainment. And it's, it's not just news, right? We know this. It's not just news. It's business. So politicians, journalists, and tech companies are, are coming together to make billions of dollars, one click at a time, by harnessing and, tens, and harnessing tens of millions of votes off of our widespread fear, loneliness, and anger. It's not to say that, that politicians and, and journalists and tech companies are all bad. Okay, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I'm grateful for the good ones. I'm thankful for those who, who serve well. We, like, we need good people in power, not no people in power. right? But let's not be naive. There are powerful people that are smart and creative and devoted, 
and they have a vested interest in stoking the fire of your fear, anger, and hate. People who have a vested interest in you having an enemy. And I mean, here's, here's, so here's what our culture has kind of felt like to me over the past few years. How, how, in our culture, how do you tell if somebody's a good person? Well, primarily, these days, it's because they hate all the right things. Because they oppose the right group of them. And so we think of this as community. It's not. Really, it's anti-community. And so what's happening is we're sacrificing real relationships, right? Friends, family, brothers, sisters. And the more tribal we get, the lonelier we get. And yet when you think about it, like tribalism and polarization are nothing new. They're, they are a part of the human condition that stems from the fall. Like what began with Cain and Abel has torn the world apart ever since. So here's, how many of you are just happy? <laughs> the joy factor in the room just, as soon as it switched from Jen to me, it just went. <laughs> yeah, I think I need the earrings. Oh my gosh, you guys, this is horrible. Let's just pray and be done. No, I, I actually, so I actually have some good news. Uh, I have gospel news. And I want us to remember that, that God is up to something beautiful because into this world of tribe against tribe came Jesus of Nazareth, who literally gave his life to turn enemies into family. Right? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us to reconcile us, not just to God, but also to one another. Jesus came into this world, suffered its brokenness, and gave his life to create a new multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-class family of God. And you guys, in Paul's theology in the New Testament, when you like sit down at a table with people who don't look like you, or think like you, or act like you, other than like you're all trying to follow Jesus together, that is, that's like a prophetic witness to the principalities and powers, like to, the, unspirit, to the, uh, the spiritual evil in the unseen realm, that their reign of terror over human history is coming to an end, that their days are numbered, that Jesus is Lord, that there's a new king, that there's a new kingdom, that there's a new family, there is now emerging a new humanity. Glenda, that's where I need an Amen. Hallelujah. Okay, and so, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay, so, so, so to the principalities and the powers in the spiritual realms, it, this, when you do that kind of, it just screams, it just screams like your reign will end and this taco night with these seven people is proof of it. Amen. Amen. Thank you. One per Jen, thank you for, for finding humor in that. I mean, this is, this is Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. This is, this is what he's up to. This is the Jesus who said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And Jesus goes on to say in the next verse, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So peacemakers will, will see God and they will experience the kingdom, but Jesus is up front right at the beginning. It may come with a cost. Because what happened to Jesus at the end of the story? Was everybody just singing kumbaya around a fire? No, like they killed him, right? They executed him. They said to Jesus, 
They said to Jesus, you are the problem. If they are the problem, you're they and you are the problem. You will destroy our nation. You're the enemy. We hate you. We will kill you. We will end your life. And yet, that's what it took to bring enemies together. Through his death, Jesus now offers new life and reconciliation. To participate in the kingdom of God both now and forevermore, James, the little brother of Jesus, painted a picture of of kingdom life like this. He said, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Kingdom life is about being a peacemaker. Now please note, I'm not saying it's about being a peacekeeper. A peacekeeper's job is to maintain the status quo even when the status quo is not good, when, when injustice is the norm, right? A peacemaker's job is to make peace, to create peace, and the implication is there is no peace. Something needs to change. One promotes the status quo, the other creatively produces transformation. So a peacemaker finds a way to bring enemies together, to create a space of listening and love and repentance and reconciliation, to turn enemies into family. And this is exactly what Jesus does. I want to look together real quick at a famous passage, Mark chapter 2. This is, okay, here we go. It says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, which to us is known more commonly as Matthew, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, okay, so follow me, and then I'm coming to your house for dinner. (laughs) Jesus had a lot of ulterior motives. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, it is easy to misread this story with a kind of like Sunday school sentimentality, as if the moral of the story is, just be sweet to everybody. But notice, this was, this was actually outrageous to those watching from the outside. I think we misread this if we see this as a nice, cute little story. This was subversive. And like, we have no 20th, 21st century equivalent for a tax collector. Try to think of somebody that could sort of you know, like, like a, a drug dealer that, that preys on children to get them addicted and that kind of thing. But the, even that doesn't line up with really what a, what a, how horrendous being a tax collector was. In the, 20, in the first century, Israel was a political powder keg. It was an explosion waiting to happen, this constant tension. The Jews were under the boot of the Roman Empire. <laughs> okay, so this is a total side note. <laughs> Last night, I, we're, we're watching f- football last night, and Kate looks at me and she goes, Dad, how many times a week do you think of the Roman Empire? <laughs> and I was like, 
I was like, I don't know, several times. And she's like, you're such a man. And I'm like, well, no, like, I, I, like whenever I'm reading scripture, like the context of the New Testament is right smack in the middle of the Roman Empire. And she's like, oh, that makes sense. I was watching this thing on, what was it? TikTok. Uh, TikTok. Just making fun of how men and women are different and how men just always are sitting around thinking about the Roman Empire. <laughs> so if you're a dude in here and you think about that outside the context of Scripture, you got it. You got it going on. Okay, that was a total unnecessary aside. The Jews were under the boot of the Roman Empire, okay? And, and that included just horrendous, crushing tax rates. In fact, some historians argue that the tax rate was as high as 80 to 90 percent. So vast numbers of people were living hand to mouth, like on their own ancestral land. So Matthew was a Jewish man who collected taxes against Jews for the Romans. This is how Romans did it in occupied territories. They would hire locals to collect their taxes. And you go, why would any self-respecting local do that to their own people? because it was exceedingly lucrative. By Roman law, tax collectors could add their own fee to whatever Rome's tax rate happened to be. So some might demand, like Rome might demand that you pay 80% of, of your crop in taxes to Rome, then a tax collector like Matthew, like Levi, could come along and say, actually, I'm requiring you to pay 93% of your crop. And he could pocket the extra 13%. So as a Jewish person in Israel, this was a fellow Jew doing this to you, causing your children to starve, causing you to lose your land. And you had zero leverage to stand up against it because behind him, there was an entire Roman battalion. And you can only imagine how Jewish people felt about Jewish tax collectors. I mean, they were extremely affluent, but they were at the bottom rung of society. They were on par with what, what they're be called, calling here sinners, which is like New Testament code for sex workers. So picture the scene with Jesus and Matthew. After inviting this tax collector to become one of his inner circle disciples, where does Jesus go next? He goes to a dinner party at Matthew's house. Jesus has dinner with tax collectors and sex workers. Question, why did tax collectors hang out with sex workers? Well, if you were a lonely, rich Jewish tax collector who was despised by everyone, how would you make yourself feel better? Maybe hire sex workers. Like, an isolated rat drinks five times as much rat heroin, right? So you have to find a way to medicate the pain in your life. So here was a commonplace dinner party for wealthy tax collectors, all the usual men and all their usual sex workers, but on this night, the party takes on a very strange feel. Rabbi Jesus and his apprentices come walking in, and you guys, you go, that's awkward. It was, it was beyond awkward. Like, this was unheard of. No rabbi would ever defile themselves this way, which is why the Pharisees are, are criticizing the heck out of it. And so while it's easy for us to judge the response of the Pharisees, it makes a ton of sense why they were feeling the way they did. I mean, we read this and we're like, Jesus is so cool. Well, that's because, that's because we live in a free country. We live in a culture with a high comfort for both taxes and sexuality without boundaries. But uh, imagine whoever your, like your deplorables are. 
Like whoever you think is just scum, whoever you think should be eradicated from the face of the earth, who are the people that do so much damage to other people and society that you, f- you feel like the world would just be better off without them? You know, I was, I was thinking about giving you some examples, uh, but some of you'd be on the list. No, uh, I was... <laughs> No, I, I was thinking about giving you guys some examples, like t- types of people that I might put in that category. I, I won't even try to do that. And here's why, because for some of you, that would be a problem. Like just the idea that Jesus would eat with those people. The, the idea that he would shake hands with them, that he would be open to friendship with them, the idea that he would show kindness to those people, it would rock you to your foundation. To the Jews, Tax collectors were the deplorables. In our culture, we can come up with our own group, but to many Jews, Jesus at Matthew's house was not sentimental. It was not cute. For many watching, this, what this rabbi doing was disgraceful. Tax collectors and sex workers were the worst of the worst. They were the scum of the earth, and yet Jesus, he eats with them, extending open arms. And in so doing, he raised the horizon of possibility over their lives. He's inviting them into a new future, a new family, a new reality. But understand, Jesus Jesus had a completely unorthodox way of doing community. Like, he brought the strangest people together. I mean, when we, we think of the disciples as a group of, like, Jewish, you know, young men, and so we go, well, there's not a lot of diversity there. Not really. Um, I'll just jump to the next chapter in Mark, and Chapter 3, starting with verse 13. Let me, it says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. So out of the much larger group of disciples, he's now appointing his inner circle. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and might, that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name something, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, okay, another name for Levi, there's our guy, there's our tax collector. Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So let's just, just for a second, to think about the, just the diversity of this, let's just think about the one disciple that gets a little title here, Simon the Zealot. Meaning, before he joined Jesus and the disciples, he was a zealot. Uh, we know Matthew was a tax collector. We know what that meant. Simon was a zealot. So let me just give you a little bit more, a uh, little more backstory. The zealots were, were, first, were a, like a first century violent group of far-right Jewish nationalists who used guerrilla tactics against Rome. So they were also sometimes called the Sicarii, which is an Aramaic word that just means like dagger man because they'd carry a small dagger called a sicca, and they would hide it underneath their tunics, and they would slip into and infiltrate a crowd or a marketplace or an event where there were a lot of people. They'd slit, like slide up behind, say, a Roman soldier, uh, or sometimes just like a Roman supporter, like a tax collector, like Matthew, our guy, and slit their throat and then disappear into the crowd. A zealot was, was basically a domestic terrorist. So try to imagine this. Both Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector are Jesus' guys. Having breakfast. Sup, bro? 
They're in his inner circle living together, eating together, traveling together, doing ministry together. These are two extremists on opposite ends. Hatred and violence ran, ran deep between these two parties for a long, long time. And yet these are two of the founding apostles of the church of Jesus. Like, you go, well, what happened to their politics? We don't know. I mean, the New Testament is silent on the issue. We don't even know much about what Jesus thought about the Roman Empire. What's clear is that he was convinced that we belong to another kingdom. Jesus was very outspoken about the kingdom of God, which in its day was in itself a sociopolitical statement. And many scholars argue that, that Jesus was deliberately quiet, that he was provocatively and intentionally silent on the raging political issues of his day, and that his silence was actually a greater statement than anything he could have ever said. And we don't know what happened to Simon and Matthew's politics. All we know is that two former enemies, at least one with a violent past, became brothers in the family of God. This is what Jesus does when things are working right. Now, you go, well, there's a lot of churches where it doesn't work like that. I know. That's when it's not working right. When it's working right, he is a peacemaker, which means he turns enemies into guests at his table, even if it's at some other rich person's house, and then he turns guests into family. And this is still what Jesus does, but now he does it through his body, through us, through the church, through you and me, through any who are willing to learn his way from him. So his primary call on us as a community of his follow, this, this is the primary call, meaning our, our primary call is not to get our candidate elected or find a way to get our enemy eradicated in the culture wars. Now, I'm not saying that we don't call out injustice, or, and I'm not saying there's not a place for politics, but we need to be clear. The primary call of Jesus on each of us and on us as his family together is the same as it's always been, to follow him into peacemaking wherever possible, to do all that we can, as much as it depends on us, to turn enemies into family. Now, when you look at how fractured and angry and lonely our culture is, you go, who's going to do something? Who's going to break down walls? Who's going to help lonely people find family? Who's going to bring enemies together to make peace? In fact, what is God's plan to bring healing to our messed up, broken world? And you guys, it turns out we're the plan. And it turns out that God doesn't really have another plan. So those who follow Jesus are, are not to do the following Jesus thing in isolation. They're to do it in family. And that family will be multi-ethnic, multi-class, and diverse. It'll include people from all kinds of different religious backgrounds, all kinds of different political backgrounds, people who come in with all sorts of, of, of ideologies. But what happens over time is that all of us learn the way of Rabbi Jesus. We, we learn to love those different from us, and enemies become guests, and guests become family. The idea is it's an alternative society. See, you, you thought you were just coming to church. No, you're part of a rebellion. <laughs> you thought it was just a life group. No, it's an alternative society. You thought you were like just on the maintenance team. No, you're part of a resistance movement. <laughs> a group of people coming together to say we, we, we refuse to be tribal in the way that the rest of our culture is. We're a new family learning the way of Jesus together 
with grace. And we are flawed and we're diverse and yet we're unified. In our world, you guys, that is not normal. And to be honest, it's never been normal. We live in a world made up of us and them. Jesus invites us to be brothers and sisters in a different kind of family. Um, and this morning, what I want to do is just give you a visual picture of what this is like. And so I've invited some people to come and help me with an illustration. And so Otis, Eloise, Brian, Tong, Mia, Giovanna, Kate, let's go. Yeah, stand amongst each other. All right, so here's how community in our world often works when it happens at all. I want you guys to get into a, a huddle like you like each other, arms kind of around each other, and huddle up there. I mean, <laughs> hey, don't hide who you are, man. This, so this is beautiful, right? We love each other, we're together, and, and, and we're just looking at each other the whole time because we like, we like each other and we like, we like being together. Now, if I'm somebody who's lonely and who's tribal and is screaming at the digital mob actually looking for a place to belong in community, I'm like, hello, <laughs> right? And they're like, whatever. And I'm like, no, guys, hi, hello, nothing, right? Because we're just focused on each other. This is how community works in our world. Okay, I want you guys to turn and face outward, hold hands. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> when Jesus is talking about community, here's what he's talking about. They are together, they love each other, but they're always looking to include people that aren't a part of the thing. They are available relationally, right? So if I said, guys, I want to be a part of your group, Eloise, what would you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Can you make some room for me? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> you guys. <laughs> Does anyone else want to be a part of our group? <laughs> Anybody? Brian? <laughs> okay, wait, no, you can't. You have a cowboy's hat on. You're in the wrong tribe. <laughs> oh, no, come on in. We love even you. All right, that's it. You guys get it. Thank you, thank you. Now you say amen. <laughs> this morning, I, I just want just to close with, and when I say close, I mean by like a pastor close. It's going to take a while. <laughs> uh, I just want to highlight a, a few things about, what, like how do, we live, how do we live out a picture like that? And I want to I make this as, as practical and applicable as I can. Um, and the first thing that I'll say is, after taking a break for the summer, we're, we're launching groups, right? We're launching ID groups and life groups and middle school, high school groups. And the, and the first thing that I, I just want to encourage all of you to do that are participating in those is be the kind of community you want to be a part of. I mean, if you want to be a part of, of a group where people are friends outside of group, then, then initiate and invite people to connect outside of the group. If you want community where things get deeper than surface level, a place where people get real and they're vulnerable and transparent, then, then be the kind of person that gets real, vulnerable, and transparent. 
If, if you want to be in a community where people listen well, then you better be sure to be a very active listener. Be the kind of community you want to be a part of. Create for others the thing that you most want. Go into your group to serve. And by the way, this is the last week to sign up for a life group for the fall quarter. After that, you're completely excluded. <laughs> but um, I want to confess a flaw in my, my marriage. Jen and I actually don't communicate perfectly. Can any of you imagine and re relate? So here's the thing. Groups do not start the first week of October. They start the last week of September. Um, and that was what we did last year, and she went with it, and I was like, what are you doing? No, uh, it just <laughs> miscommunication. So they're actually starting the, the last week of September, and so our life groups, for those of you that don't know how they work, they run on a quarter system like a university, like think of University of Washington. So there's a fall quarter, a winter quarter, and a spring quarter. You might not be able to be in a group for the whole year. If you're like an accountant, and it's coming up on March, winter quarter might not work for you, right? And that's okay. So you can be in for one quarter and then not another one. Um, but we have, we have groups for men, for women, mixed, even online. And so this, is, this really is the last week for the fall quarter because we don't throw people in in the middle of the quarter. Um, so just mark your Connect card or, um, or your online card if you're watching this online and drop that in the, in the deal on the way out. But here's what I want to say. If you're going to be in a group, be all the way in. You're in for a quarter. You're, you're committed for like 10 weeks. So it's not a come when I feel like it kind of thing. If you're going to be in, be in and be there to serve and to create the kind of community that you, that you want to be a part of. Okay, another thing is be thoughtful. Here's another thing we can do is be thoughtful about how you engage a church. Um, and for years, we've, we've worked on a few like simple things together, just little practices to be welcoming. Um, and I want to quickly remind you of them. If you've taken the partnership class or you've come to several Ignites over the years, these are going to be familiar. But let me just revisit these as a reminder. Um, and let me frame these by asking, when, when somebody comes to church for the first time, what, what, are, what are some of the emotions that people often feel? Fear, anxiety. Nervous. Nervous. It's a wonder anybody comes to church. <laughs> right? I mean... Uh, but this is, most people feel nervous, anxious, afraid, unsettled, and some of you are not that way. Some of you are like, oh, I, don't, I don't feel that way. You're like, oh, that's great. You should know you're weird. <laughs> <laughs> most people trying a new church, they feel some sort of angst. I'm a pastor. Like, I'm a professional churcher, and <laughs> when I go to someone else's church, I'm like, oh, what's going to happen? So here are some practical things um, we can do to be welcoming and just run through these. The first is give a word, a touch, and a smile. In other words, engage other people. It is so easy to just kind of put our head down, walk to our place where we like to sit and do our thing, and when it's over, we just, you guys, if we all do that, oh my gosh, what kind of a feel is this going to be, right? So give a word, say hello to somebody. If it makes sense to touch them, touch them. Keep it appropriate. <laughs> um, and smile if you're, if you're able to. Um, Second thing is exercise the three-minute rule. Um, and the three-minute rule just means when church is over, for the first three minutes, try to talk with somebody that you don't normally talk with. They might be newer to our church, or it might just be somebody that you don't know that well. Now, why would we do that? We want to make you really uncomfortable. No. The, <laughs> the reason is because human nature is 
Church is over, and I go and find the people that feel safe and comfortable for me, and then we have cliques, and anybody who isn't a part of those cliques is completely on the outside, right? And we don't, you don't want to be a part of a church like that. So I, I know it takes some reaching out, but try to find somebody the first three minutes after church is over. Try to talk with somebody or engage in conversation with somebody you don't already know super well. Number three, strategic parking and seating. We're getting to the point where our church is growing. We don't have that big of a parking lot. Have you noticed? <laughs> so it is possible to park on Briar Road. Um, that's what I do. When I pull in in the mornings, I park on Briar Road. And the reason is we want to leave spots open for people. Look, if you, if you invite, you've been working, just imagine you've been working on a friend or your sister or a coworker or something like that. And you've said, hey, I want you to come. And they finally decide to come to church. And for whatever reason, they get a little held up in the morning and they get here and there's nowhere to park. For many people, that is enough reason in and of itself to turn around and head out. We, we don't want to do that. Okay, so, so if you're able-bodied and you can park on Briar Road, uh, please do that. If, if you've got a, a van full of 17 children, um, <laughs> don't do that, okay? You, <laughs> there's no shame for parking in the parking lot um, if that doesn't work for you. So be strategic about it. And then seating. Uh, where does everybody like to sit in a church, you guys? In the back. Why? It's close to the door. Who knows what the heck is going to go on in here, and I might need to get out, right? So the people that are visiting feel that infinitely more than you do. And so what we would say is, if you're able to, um, sit as far forward as you can and leave aisle seats for people to fill in after you. You guys do a really good job of this, but I, the, the more we get into fall, the more this is going to be important. Um, if you're, you know, if you have to go to the bathroom a lot or you're going to need to get in and out or you have a squirrely little one or whatever, then yeah, be in the back. But if you're, if that's not you and you're able to sit in the front and, and toward the edges of the aisles, do that. Number four is be early, which just means don't plan on coming to church at 1030 and then actually getting here at whatever. Um, the idea is target like 1015 ish. Why? Um, because you can be welcoming. You can, you can talk with people and not just put the blenders on and get to a seat, right? It's, a, it's an opportunity to, to be kind and to be friendly to people. Um, so if, if you have kids, uh, they don't, we, don't want ki- we don't want you dropping off your kids at like 7.30 a.m. <laughs> right? So when I say be early, you're not like, sweet, coffee date. Uh, it's the earliest we want your kids over there, and we love your kids, but the earliest we want them over there is 10.20, I believe. Is that... Is that right? I think that's right. Um, And then the last thing is, uh, when church is over, visit inside the aisles or in the lobby. So just don't clog up the the main exit because people are already panicked about getting out of here. (laughs) So I just, you know, we can think, we can serve and think of others when we go to groups. We can serve and think of others by welcoming them at church. And then one other thing we can do is, is serve in an organized ministry. And I've asked Jen to come and just talk with you guys a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, 
What I will say is that I love that we get to be family together here at Brookview. And over the years, I have learned so much from this community. And it has been really one of the great joys of my life to get to serve alongside of all of many of you and watching you come alive and use your gifts in the way that God wired and designed you to lean in and, and be family together. And so there are a lot of really organic ways as well as structured ministries that you already serve in. Um, but I want to just kind of point out our list of how we work together as family to make Brookview feel like home to other people. And so you have um, a little paper on your chair, hopefully, that says help. I don't know what it says. Helping at Brookview. Wow, that's pretty simple. <laughs> pretty straightforward. Um, but maybe you're in a place where you would like to be involved, but you don't know what we would need help with. Um, and so that flyer is there for you to kind of browse through. Um, and it's just a list. Um, and we'd be grateful and super excited to add you to any of our current um, teams that serve together in whatever area makes sense for you. But sometimes we get asked, so where do you need the most help? And um, this morning's just kind of a good chance to highlight our biggest area of need that we have right now, and it's this. We really need help in our programs that are for kids and teens here at Brookview. Um, a few months ago, I gave a message about our family ministry here, which is an area that I oversee. And you might remember me talking about the frame that we use for family ministry and kids programming around here. And it's a concept called Think Orange. So it's the idea that this, there's the church, and it represents the light. So it has this color yellow. And in church, every week, week in and week out, our role is to put the spotlight on Jesus and who he is. And then there's the home. And that represents the place where there are great amounts of love and grace and being known and feeling known. Like, that should exist at church, too. But it happens even more intensely in the home simply because there's more time in the home to be able to do that. And so that's the color red. And when you combine the two, when both are working together, you get the color orange. And that's kind of the sweet spot the sweet spot that we want to be in where church and home are working together, there will be greater impact. And that's what the goal is. And so as we're talking about church and as we lean in and serve God together in structured ways with kids and teens, we're talking about the yellow part of this whole thing. We need adults who can show up in students' lives and put the spotlight on Jesus. And so we're in need of volunteers for our kids' church program, for school-aged kids, for middle school students, as well as high school students. And I'll just highlight those and just say, what would it take to do those things? So kids' church. We need a few more adults. It can also be high school students there who are willing to invest in kids on Sunday mornings during the church service about every one, once every six to seven weeks. So there's a curriculum that we use. It's video-based. It's awesome. You don't have to be a theological expert or a kid whisperer to invest in them. I mean, maybe you'll get earrings if you're a kid whisperer. I don't, I don't know. Um, but there's a guide 
it walks you through everything you need, and I promise that it's really easy. And there's really cool activities to engage the kids in, and it's fun for them and for you too. And that is the feedback that we get from people. And then in our middle school and high school, um, because of staffing and a few other factors, we're making some adjustments to how we serve students. And we are going to move away from the traditional model of youth group during one particular night of the week. So here's kind of what we're stepping into. First, um, for middle school students, we'd like to begin meeting with them on Sunday mornings during church where they get to go and have an age-appropriate message. Um, for some kids, they love middle school students. They love being up here. And if that is your middle school student, stay here. Keep coming. We love that. But sometimes it's just a little too much sitting, and it doesn't meet them where they're at. And we have some older kids in our Kids Church program that are ready for something that doesn't feel quite as fun. Um, they want it to feel a little more communal, like who's cool in the room, right? Because that is one of the number one questions middle school kids um, answer. So like we do in Kids Church, a volunteer would serve about once every four to six weeks if we could have it how we wanted to. Again, there's a very easy to follow video curriculum. Don't have to be a the theological expert. You have to be willing to show up, facilitate a conversation from a list of questions and then to share authentically about your life and get to know and invest in students that are sitting in the room with you um, that morning. And then for high school, we're going to shift away from what we did last year, which was gathering students on Monday nights here at the church. And what we want to do is have our high school students meeting together like life, group, life groups do in living rooms with the warmth of a home to be in and that type of an environment. And we want them to be able to gather with trusted adults and to learn how to engage well in groups and to have the opportunity to grow in Christ as they think critically and share authentically about their lives. So again, we need some trusted adults that be open to leading a life group for a quarter at a time because it will follow the same rhythm that we have in our adult groups. Um, in addition to that, we're also looking for someone or two, if, if we end up having more than one group, that might be willing to open their home um, weekly for a group to meet in and just create some hospi hospitality and a, a warm space. So as I wrap up, um, one passage that always comes to mind when it comes to ministry with kids for me is Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it's this. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And the word that starts out, verse 7 of that verse, is impress. And in Hebrew, that word is shana. And shana means to sharpen or engrave. And, and I love that. I love that because it's this idea that our role as parents and as the community of God or the village that is surrounding kids, we're engravers. 
Okay, this is not just a broad brush stroke or a one-time conversation to do this or do that or look like this or look like that. It is like engraving. It's constant. It's showing up. So we get to pass on, um, like we get to show up in kids' lives repeatedly in intentional ways, in authentic ways. It's modeling what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus, like even imperfectly but learning and growing in what it looks like to live like Jesus would if he was in my place. So when I get to be with kids, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm authentically doing. I'm not preaching and teaching at them. There is a place for that. But what we're looking here is for something to get caught rather than taught. Um, so I know you've heard that before, but it just rings so true in my experience. Like, so much more is caught than taught. Teaching's important. There's definitely a place for it, but there's no substitute for watching someone live out the story of Jesus in their lives. And that's what we get to do as a village that raises kids together. I believe that every child has a primary voice in their spiritual development in their lives, and it is the parent. Um, given the number of hours a parent has in a child's life in comparison to what the church has, which is like an hour uh, and a half every week if they come to church every week, but that just doesn't happen. Um, and so there's a role that we get to play as a church. Um, we get to partner with parents to make a difference in kids' lives. It's the whole Think Orange things. So what a privilege it has been and continues to be to get to be in a village that invests in kids and shows up in their lives. It is a beautiful thing. It is a powerful thing that we get to do together. And I think I could just go on and on and gush over stories and lives and kids and impact that I've watched you have in students' lives, but that's for a different time, so I'm going to wrap it up. Um, if you are interested in anything that I talked about, or anything that was on that list that you got on your chair this morning, um, make a note on your Connect card um, this morning. Or if you're watching at home or listening later, um, go online and fill out the online Connect card, and you can drop those in the basket on your way out this morning. Last thing I just want to say is, um, you know, we can do this in a way that makes a difference for people, and it doesn't have to be all programmed. Um, the last way we can be intentional about creating family is just creatively build organic community. And you don't have to wait for an official church program, and you guys, you guys are awesome at this. You, you really are. You're, you're constantly looking for creative, organic ways to build community. You gather some dudes together for a poker night. You invite somebody over for dinner. You meet up somewhere. You, you invite somebody to go for a walk with you, or you grab coffee, or you plan a play date with the kids of another family or two, right? You talk to other people and find out what their interests are, and then you invite them into community with you. Uh, you go to a Mariners game, or you play Frisbee golf, or, or you offer to help somebody with a house project that you find out that they're working on. And so many of you guys do this so well. And I think God is just so pleased. Um, when you don't live like your, your friend list is full, 
Have you met people whose friend lists are full? And when you live life with open arms, when you authentically engage people that are different from you, then you are living out the vision of Jesus, and it's beautiful. And I'll tell you, this is not normal in our world. It's never been. So when when Jesus said to a tax collector and a zealot, come follow me, I'll teach you a new way to be human. You'll be my friends, my family. But beyond that, you will become brothers to each other. You will overcome barriers with each other that no one thought possible. It will be stunning. Because I'm starting an alternative society, brothers and sisters learning to love each other like family despite backgrounds of all kinds. You will be the light of the world, he said. You will be the salt of the earth. You will be the hope for all generations. Because this is still the invitation. And it's still beautiful. Father in heaven, I thank you for this community and all that it's been to so many over the years and to me and my family. I thank you for the reality that it is, it's flawed and imperfect and it's got mess, but it's authentic. And there is love and there is grace and we all come in with our different levels of understanding and commitment and questions and reservations and hesitations and all of that. But along the way, if we just keep leaning into one another and to, to the Holy Spirit and to, to your way, Jesus, you bring us into family and you do something You do something that we need. You give us authentic relationships. We have to work through stuff, but it's worth it. And so, God, would you continue to build us into family? Would you build us into family that looks different than the community of the world? Would you you make us into an alternative society in all the right ways? In Jesus' name, amen.